0: Morning. Morning. If you don't know me, my name is Rich. I guess I can say I'm part of the leadership team now. (laughs) I also run a connect group here in South Britain with my wife, Emma. Um, If you're not part of a connect group, I really encourage you to become part of one. There's lots that run across the city. Um, We're a big church, and it's hard to really build friendships and relationships with people here on a Sunday morning. And Connect Group is where we can really deepen those friendships and support each other. So we're continuing to look at the Book of Acts. I realised that video was an overview of the Book of Luke, but it's a two-part two-part series. Luke wrote Acts as well. And if you haven't been here over the previous weeks, or if you're like me and you can't quite remember the day of the week. Then I'll give you the story so far. Jesus made a pretty big impact. He was crucified and came back to life. uh, And he left his followers with the job of telling people about him. But they had to stay in Jerusalem until they received the gift that was promised to them. That turned out to be the Holy Spirit, which came on them like fire. Then the church starts to gain momentum. Thousands join. They start sharing their life together. Peter and John are doing what Jesus asked them. They're talking to people and sharing and healing people. But they get told off by the religious leaders. Then there's this awkward bit where Ananias and Sapphira die because they try to lie to God. Then there's more healing, more trouble, more arrests, more telling off. The church starts rumbling and grumbling at each other. So Jesus' disciples appoint some leaders. One of those is Stephen who ends up being brought before the same council that arrested Jesus on similar false charges. He gives this amazing speech that is pretty much a summary of the Old Testament. So if you're a fan of shortcuts, read Acts 7, and you'll get a good idea of what the first part of the Bible is all about. So, we're going to pick up the story in Acts 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 3. Stephen continues at the, um, the council. Name one of the prophets your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations. They shook their fists at him in rage, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And then we come to a bit that I just think is the most eloquent, the most coherent, the most persuasive argument from the religious leaders. Then they put their hands over their ears and started shouting. It's the la 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 la, la I'm-not-listening kind of argument. They put their hands over their ears and started shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit he fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. And these are words that are echoed by Jesus on the cross, or rather, Stephen is echoing them here. As Jesus was hanging on the tree, he cried out, Father, receive my spirit. And he also asked God to forgive the people that were killing him and continue Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, swooping across the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers were, except the apostles were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So there's quite a lot there. I've given this morning title. It's not working. How do you turn it on? There's like a switch on the side. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've given this morning the title, A Life Worth Dying For. And for me, the question mark's important. I found, when I came up with these words, that God was just saying that there's multiple questions really buried in here. One of them is, do you love someone enough to die for them? Maybe your children, parents, a friend. Is your life worth dying for? But the question kind of buried in this question for me that I want to focus on this morning is is a life that we hope for worth dying for? And that word hope I think is kind of a divine coincidence because I hadn't really twigged it. It was uh, the first day of Advent as I started preparing this. And the first candle represents hope. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And maybe even what you die for. I want to explore this morning how how we, like Stephen, can have confidence in Jesus, confidence in the life that we hope for, and that our hope is rooted in truth, grounded in Scripture, and confirmed through experience. So it's rooted in truth. We know the Bible is accurate, we know the Bible is trustworthy, and we know the Bible is true. Now the New Testament makes some claims and stuff we're gonna hear a lot about over the coming weeks of Advent. Jesus was born to a virgin. He claimed to be God. He did miracles like walking on water and raising the dead. He was crucified on a Roman cross But he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven and reigns as king of the universe. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians uh, puts it quite well. And this is from the easy to read version, because I found it quite easy to read. Now brothers and sisters, Paul says, I want you to remember the good news that I told you. Continue to base your life on it. It's God's way to save you. But you must continue believing it. If you don't, You believed for nothing. I told you the most important truths. That Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say. That he was buried and raised to life on the third day, as the scriptures say. And that he appeared to Peter and the twelve apostles, and after that, Christ appeared to more than 500 other believers. Most of them are still living today, Paul says, but some have died. Now, I'm no scholar, so I'm going to be sharing some things from people far cleverer than me. If you've ever done the Alpha course, uh, some of this may sound familiar. Um, We know the Bible is accurate. This isn't essential information. There's not going to be a test. But it's good to know that there are people that have devoted their lives to figuring out, is the Bible that we have accurate and reliable? Now, the original pieces of paper, of course, that the authors wrote on are lost to history. But we do have a means of figuring out um, how reliable what we have now is, and it's called textual criticism. And it takes two things. How soon after the original was written was the earliest copy made? And secondly, how many copies do we have? Now, for comparison, there's a document that accounts Julius Caesar's um, Gallic Wars. Now, there are apparently 10, at most, readable copies of that document, and the earliest was written 900 years after Caesar's time. For the New Testament, we have 5,000 distinct documents in its original language, many going back to the first three centuries. So there's plenty of our history that we trust that has far less to back it up. But, yeah... It's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So do we lose anything in translation? Well, translating ancient language is not easy. I've tried to learn biblical Greek. It's really not easy. But luckily, there are these clever old scholars that have devoted their lives and been working for centuries at translating these. And it really is possible for genuine, accurate, and correct communication to occur through translation. It's only a small percentage That have ever been uncertain about, and that's where we get the footnotes in our Bible. But we can confidently say that there's not one major point of our faith, of our doctrine, that is rested on a disputed or uncertain passage. So the words are historically accurate, but are the witnesses reliable? Jesus was raised from the dead, is the claim. Was it a hoax? a deception, a mass hallucination. As you read beyond the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the witnesses maintain a confident insistence that they found his tomb empty and they saw the risen Jesus, a belief they maintained even at the cost of their own lives, as we see here with Stephen. And later we see Paul gets beaten and imprisoned and suffers deeply for his faith. Why would you stick to that story? Where would you get such confidence and conviction? Surely the only possible explanation is that Jesus was bodily historically resurrected from the dead. So it's historically accurate. The witnesses are reliable. But was what Jesus said was he just crazy? Well, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is best known probably for his *Narnia* series. But in Mere Christianity, if you're in any way interested in, in this stuff, this is a great, easy way to start in exploring why our faith makes sense. I'm going to read to you a passage from it where he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man... Sorry... Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. you can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not have any of this patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not mean to. And then Bono of the band U2 was asked this very similar kind of question in an interview. The interviewer said, so Christ is ranked among the great world's thinkers, but the son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And Bono responds with, the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. So our hope in Jesus, our faith, is rooted in facts, in truth. The Bible is accurate, trustworthy, and true. Our hope is also grounded in scripture. The Bible is an amazing long history of God's love for us. It's a unified story that points to Jesus and it has echoes and ripples throughout the pages of this book that spill over into our lives. Previous to the passage that we just read about Stephen's death, he retold passionately the story of his people, of the Israelites from the Old Testament. And it's full of wisdom and poetry and songs and worship and celebration, but also pain and cries of suffering and questions. We can read Proverbs, which is wisdom poetry, and it shows us that if we live with wisdom and the fear of the Lord, then we can experience the good life. But that's balanced by Ecclesiastes, which is like the critic's response to Proverbs. It forces us to face the fact that time marches on. We all die. And and bad things do happen to good people. Then there are the songs and prayers of Psalms full of joy, celebration, pain and questioning. And as we read it, we remain puzzled a lot of the time. The Bible doesn't present a concise answer, but it guides us through to contemplate life and to seek God. It is a unified story that points to Jesus. Not only are there 322 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus, he shows up all over the place. In the story of Noah and the great flood, Noah, uh, the humans are in a mess and God finds Noah, a righteous man. And he builds an ark and his family are saved. And in Jesus, we find the truly righteous man. He dies on a wooden cross and as part of his family, we are saved. There's a story of Abraham and Isaac and in Genesis 22, God says to Isaac, Take your son your only son, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him. That's jarring. It's hard to understand why God would ask that. But we hear these words echoed again in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe that's a life worth dying for. God didn't ask any more of Abraham than he was prepared to give himself. There's more in this story. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice on his back up a hill in the region of Moriah. Then centuries later, Jesus carried the wood for his sacrifice up the hill in the region of Moriah. God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac. And God provides Jesus as our substitute. We could go on in the lives of Joseph, Moses, Joshua, King David, all whispering or even proclaiming Jesus through their stories. This book is amazing. It's full of subtle and creative metaphors and design patterns and echoes of intricate details are woven through every page. It's a unified story that points to Jesus. And with the book of Acts that we've reached now in these recent weeks, we're invited to be a part of that story. It becomes our story. And we join these early Christians, our brothers and sisters, faithfully following God's promptings. So we can be confident that our hope in Jesus is rooted in truth, grounded in Scripture and it's confirmed by our experiences now experiences can be subjective but they can be really powerful and john shared how he'd had a tough week and called out to jesus i figure joining the leadership team maybe now is a good time to share my testimony again it's been a while i think i shared it at my baptism in 2006 but I grew up in a loving Christian home. And I moved to Peterborough when I was 14, and we started to come to Brown Baptist Church, but I didn't really feel like it fitted in. During that time in secondary school, the youth worker here, Andrew Osler, would cycle out to Stanground College and run a CU for two or three of us. And that really spoke volumes to me, and it's really stuck with me that he took that time to come and meet with just a couple of people. He thought we were worth it. And yet, after I left school, I drifted away from church. Nothing horrific, but I felt like my life was on a journey that I wasn't going to be best pleased with. And somehow, I found myself back here, sat in these chairs, looking grumpy. I wasn't being forced to come, but I didn't want to be here either. And I think what drew me in I'd read a story about a guy called Nicky Cruz. He was a gangster in America. And he faced a preacher telling him that Jesus loved him. Nicky threatened him with a knife and said he was going to cut him into pieces. That preacher stood up to him and said, If you cut me into a thousand pieces, every piece will cry out, Jesus loves you. I think another story that brought me along and helped me realise and remember God Um, You can read it in a book called She Said Yes. But I came to the story by the words of a song by a band called Flyleaf. The song is called Cassie. And it goes like this. The question asked in order to save her life or take it. The answer no to avoid death. The answer yes would make it. Do you believe in God written on the bullet? Say yes to pull the trigger. Do you believe in God written on the bullet? And Cassie pulled the trigger. Seeing that echo stories like Stephen, that people are prepared to stand firm in their faith, just resonated with me. It challenged me. So I found myself back in the church. I found myself attending a small group where I made friendships that have lasted years and mean the world to me, that have changed my life for the better. I got baptised and had the privilege of being drawn in to youth work here. And I've seen the trajectory of young people's lives changed. Just this morning before I came out, I heard a song on UCB radio by one of the um, people that came here as a young person. In those years, we did something called street invasion, where we, took, where we encouraged and equipped the young people of how to share their testimony and then took them out on the streets of Breton and then later we took them out into, across the city and partnered with other churches. They shared their testimony with people out on the streets and invited them back here to youth clubs. Some of those people that came to those youth clubs that had never been in church before, they started to come to youth alpha events. They started to come into small groups. And I've had the privilege of seeing some of them grow in their faith, grow up, get married, have children, join ministry. And I've seen God Change the trajectory of their lives. Since then, I've just tried to be obedient to God. I've jumped into becoming a father and a husband in one go. I've seen God's provision in my business, and there have been times that I've been really scared that I wouldn't be able to provide for my family, and God has provided work. I've risked sharing words of encouragement that I felt God had given me for people and found out that it was just the right word at just the right time. I've had the privilege of praying for someone for healing and seeing God answer. And in those around me, I see God at work. I see our hope being confirmed by their lives. I see my parents holding firm to their faith in the face of overwhelming, difficult daily lives. I've had friends die and see the remarkable way that those left behind have responded, in the pain and confusion. Not least, my amazing wife, Emma, who, when her first husband died, turned up at church just days later with her not even one-year-old daughter, still praising God. I've walked closely with friends if they have faced terrible troubles, and life-threatening illnesses and I have seen their faithfulness and their trust. And I see now in my seven-year-old son, who for as long as I can remember has had such a thirst for God and such a love for the Bible and such a willingness to pray for me when I'm stressed about preaching at church. Now this may sound like uh, an impressive list of things and it is, it's a highlight reel if you like. It's what we see on Facebook of other people's lives. But there is a reality that runs alongside it as well. I've suffered from panic attacks and I still suffer with anxiety. I've seen people that I love turn away from God. I've prayed for healing and not seen it. I've hurt people and people have hurt me. I've cried out for God for answers and not heard the answer that I want. But I've decided that your focus determines your reality. And what you live for, what you hope, shapes the way you live. And maybe even what you'd be prepared to die for. Stephen focused on Jesus. He saw beyond the troubles and persecution he was facing. He saw beyond the stones that were flying at him. He saw Jesus and he saw the life that he hoped for. We need to build our stories together with shared experiences. In order to give your life for the gospel, you've got to live your life for the gospel. God places us in insignificant places and positions. So our desire to serve him translates into the reality of serving each other. We won't see God move or Grow in our faith if we keep our head down. I've heard it said that sometimes people could have 20 years of Christian life and experience, but others have one year of Christian life and experience repeated 20 times. We have to make sure that we're growing. Maybe, like I said at the start, join a connect group if you're not part of one. If you are, make sure you go and be willing to be open and vulnerable. It doesn't really work otherwise. But God wants you. God chose you. God put the passions in you. God has opportunities for you, and has positioned you right here for a purpose. Is God nudging you to partner with him in something in the church? Not because we need volunteers, but because we're family. Maybe you could share what God is doing in your life so that we can celebrate with you. I think we're not that great at celebrating together. Not congregationally. The other week, SJ shared that some of the children in our church have chosen to follow Jesus. And there was a pattering of applause. But I just felt, where was the excitement? Some people, some children in our church have decided to follow Jesus. Their lives will never be the same again. We need to ask for help. There is a community of people here, and I think a lot of us are willing to help each other out, but we're not mind readers. So we need to overcome some of that pride and ask for help. That said, we need to take a genuine interest in each other as well. There's a guy called Francis Chan, and I want to listen to more of what he says, but this really stuck out to me recently. We never grow closer to God when we just live our life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. We've got to live our lives on purpose and make good choices. Joyce Mayer says, if you want a miracle in your life, whatever God says to do, do it. So, we can be confident that our hope in Jesus, that our hope of a life to come, is rooted in truth grounded in scripture and confirmed by our experiences. Now, if any of this has spoken to you this morning, and particularly if you didn't realise that we can have such confidence in the Christian faith or maybe you don't have a relationship with God, I want to encourage you to come forward. As the band come up and play, um, we're not going to throw stones at you. But if, if you're ready to listen to God, we don't have to have this sorted. We don't need to be scholars of the Bible and understand how it all works. You will still have questions. We all do. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. But if you're feeling God's tug on you, then I want to encourage you to come forward and I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus.